Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and for sending those uh, out whom you have called for a very particular type of ministry. We pray that you would open our hearts to whatever it is that your call is on our lives. And indeed, Lord, uh, for those of us sitting here who may be called uh, to the particular office of priest or deacon, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, we had Ananias and Sapphira, they die, and, uh, and then the church grows by leaps and bounds. Um, you know, I think, you know, it is a depressing story and think about it, but like, I mean, this is really awful, but aren't there people that you know in your life that if they died, life would be a little bit better? <laughs> so maybe that, they were like, you know what, I wasn't going to go to church, but now that they're dead, maybe I can go. Uh, so it, the church grows by leaps and bounds and then they get locked up. And uh, not, I mean, if you're a good, devout Jew in Jerusalem and your kid starts going to the youth group at the church at this point in time, like, this is not, people are dying. Uh, the, the leaders have just been in jail. It's like, who was the guy from the basement? Remember him who was impersonating a police officer, right? And now he's in jail. Uh, that would be fun, but, uh, but it'll get you in jail. But these guys are in jail, so they're not, uh, the reputation of, of the apostles is not, uh, not, not necessarily a positive one in the eyes of many. And they go before uh, the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel uh, says, you know, if this is of God, we're not going to be able to get in the way of it. And if it's of man, it's simply going to peter out eventually. So what's, let's just see what happens. And so they did beat them and say, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And immediately they went out and did what? Talked about Jesus. They went rejoicing after getting beaten, and then they uh, uh, went and did that. And so it says the church experienced more growth at that point than it had initially. So at this point, we're looking at at least, in Jerusalem, at least, if it's just a little more than double, over 10,000 people in, in the short amount of time that we have here have become Christians in Jerusalem, and uh, not the least of which are probably some pretty influential people and uh, it's at this point in chapter 6 where they finally run into a little bit of a controversy. Now, we had the controversy with Ananias and Sapphira, but that was dealt with. And now we run into a controversy that's not theological, but it's administrative. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, and a, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Okay, so right out of the gate, Luke tells us that at this point, Christians in Jerusalem be, were becoming known as what? There was a name for them. Disciples. So it had kind of, they kind of hijacked the word, and so you would say, I'm a disciple, which meant that you were a Christian. 
And it wasn't, we're going to get to it later on, Antioch is the first place that, that Christians were called Christians. But at this point in Jerusalem, they're being called disciples. There's a pretty powerful word. Uh, it wasn't uncommon uh, in this day and age to have Jews uh, who were disciples of a particular rabbi. Uh, and so they would follow that particular rabbi. Uh, but this is altogether different because uh, as far as a lot of Jews are concerned, uh, these people are disciples of who? A dead guy. Right? Although they'd heard reports or had even seen him. And so they're disciples of Jesus. Not disciples of some living person that you can come see in front of you. But at this point, Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has descended upon them. And now God, still alive, uh, and yet he now sits at the right hand of the Father. And so they were known as disciples. And then these Hellenists, who are Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were upset because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So a lot of Christians who are of wealth, you know, there's this idea that Christianity in Acts uh, talks about sort of a socialist state, but that's not what's happening. We see that in Ananias and Sapphira. That what's happening are people who have uh, an abundance of wealth are generous enough to either liquidate that wealth uh, or to take whatever liquid assets they have on hand and give them over to the church to help provide for those who cannot provide for themselves. And one particular group are widows. In fact, one of the marks of true religion, James says in chapter 1, is that true religion cares for its widows and orphans. Because those are two of the most vulnerable sets, demographics uh, in general, uh, but especially in this day and age, because if you're a widow, especially if you're a young widow, what means do you have to provide for yourself? None. Uh, and what you have of any sort of uh, social services are provided through what? The synagogue. Well, if you're now a disciple of Jesus, if you're a Christian, uh, what do you think the synagogue is going to say? No, <laughs> right? No, no. Go, 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 to your, go to your people. Well, what we find is the Christians are actually being more generous uh, than the Jews of the day by giving uh, so much. But who's being neglected are the Greek-speaking uh, Jewish Christians. We remember in Acts, remember when everybody comes from all over the place to Jerusalem? Uh, well, there are lots of Jews that left uh, during a diaspora that went to Greek-speaking parts of the Mediterranean, like up in Antioch and beyond, heading toward Greece. And now a lot of them have come back into Jerusalem to settle. And even though there are over 10,000 Christians at this time in Jerusalem, uh, it's not like uh, they've built Hunter Street Baptist Church there on the outskirts of Jerusalem uh, and they've got a little shuttle in the parking lot so you can park your camel and then you kind of get on and, and go, go to the sanctuary. Uh, it's, it's not a huge mega church, but in fact it's tending to break down probably based on geography but we know it's at least being broken down based upon language. So the Hellenists are worshipping together and the Hebrew or Aramaic speaking uh, Christians are worshiping together. And even though they're worshiping the same God, they're, wor they're reading out of the same Bible, uh, the Hellenists are reading from the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, and the, the uh, Jews who are Hebrew uh, and speak Hebrew, uh, not all of them, but uh, a number of them, most of them still speaking Aramaic, they are, um, they are uh, reading from the Hebrew Old Testament. Do you all know that? That actually Hebrew, uh, that a lot of people in Jesus' day and age actually didn't speak Hebrew. And, uh, and it wasn't until when that the nation of Israel en masse began to speak Hebrew. 
1948, that's right. So actually when they moved, all these Jews from all over the world moved back to what is now Israel, uh, very few of them could converse in Hebrew. And so if you learn Hebrew, uh, go over to Beeson or wherever, and you go learn Hebrew, you could be a tour guide in Israel. You could do it. Um, And so uh, just in case uh, you need a job. Uh, so, uh, so they're, they're, but the Greeks were clearly in the minority, and then the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We don't know whether that was because they didn't like the Greek-speaking Jews, or whether if it was intentional or not. It, it really doesn't matter because what the, what the way it pans out is pretty remarkable. Um, the, we don't know why it is that they're being neglected, except that there's a real problem. And the apostles admit it. Okay, we have a problem on our hands. What are we going to do to fix it? And so, um, now, now granted, they do right out of the gate say something. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Right Now, if they had just stopped there, that would have sounded like you're... Like, what people would expect a preacher to say. Uh, but they said, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to do this to this duty. And so the apostles really were too busy. And so the reason why these widows are being neglected is because the apostles are busy doing something else, namely preaching, right? Preaching and praying. And so... Here in Acts chapter 6, we see a change in responsibilities among the 12, and there are seven chosen to handle this administrative task. This is the birth of the office that we now call deacon. This is where it it starts. Now, Luke doesn't use uh, the Greek word um, for uh, diakonia, for for the people, the seven that are chosen, uh, but he does use it uh, for the word distribution and the word ministry. And so this is a servant ministry, and their job, their job is to handle this task of distributing the food and whatever resources necessary to the, whole, to the church. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the list of names, they're all Greek names. And the whole church, this is another interesting, the whole church comes in and says, this is, this is the problem. Now, I don't think that like all of a sudden Peter's there talking to the other guys and then all of a sudden 10,000 people show up. Uh, but, uh, but they call together a, 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 a representative body of the church and even the Hebrew Christians understood that this is what God wanted. And so they didn't flinch that Luke tells us that they were all Greek-speaking Christians who were appointed to this office. Now, if I were a Hebrew Christian and things were kind of going okay for me, and then all of a sudden I find out the Greek-speaking guys are now in charge, I think, no, wait a minute. Right. Because what? I mean, reta- I would think retaliation. Or that now maybe the, the Greek-speaking uh, Jewish Christians are going to be favored. But that's not what happens. So God speaks clearly to the church, and these seven men are raised up for this, uh, for this task. Now, I want to talk about ordination uh, because uh, it, well, I, I think there's a little bit of confusion about ordination. I, it, it's either totally undersold or it's overblown, uh, one of the two. Um, my, uh, I think I've told you the story, but I have a family member who uh, once in church 
put uh, $30 in the plate, and, and I said, well, why, why 30 And she said, well, because I figured $30 for an hour's worth of work is pretty good. And, um, uh, which is a little bit insulting to me, um, um, uh, because uh, if, if, only, uh, if only that were so. Uh, but on the other hand, I also have people that, that sort of look at me and think, um, you know, it's like talking to Moses. Now, I don't have that problem as much as some. There was a guy I worked with in my old church, and he said, uh, and I said, well, you know, why aren't you speaking to so-and-so? And they said, because going to him is like going to Moses. And I said, well, thank you. Um, who am I? <laughs> it doesn't really matter, but, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's either something far away uh, and, and odd, or it's something that it's still odd, but is not, is not real work. And here in Acts, uh, what does Luke tell us? And y'all just said it, but let's do it again. What is the primary function of the apostles? What's their main job? To preach, right. Uh, their primary job is, is to preach. Now that opens up a whole bunch of things, because let's talk about it in terms of Anglicanism, because that's, that's what we are. Uh, our church uh, believes that there are three orders of ministry uh, in the New Testament and those, ministry, those orders are bishop, uh, presbyter or priest, and, and deacon. And um, uh, what, uh, the, the office of bishop really kind of grew out of the need to have supervision and oversight, but they were originally sort of priests with enhanced functions. And, but here in Acts 6, we have deacons doing something very different. Now, I, when I was ordained, I was ordained deacon first, and then I was ordained a priest. And uh, that's sort of an old tradition. Uh, but the reason behind it is, is that there's never a moment in time where I shouldn't forget that I'm always a deacon, right? It's still uh, my call on my life to serve uh, other people. Sometimes that's, uh, that's just a lot of lip service, and sometimes it's very real. Uh, one of the most amazing, it hasn't happened here, and I can't wait for it to happen. It will one day. Uh, we were at confirmation, and the bishop goes by and lays his hands on this 13-year-old little boy, and as he lays his hands and prays that he would increase in the Holy Spirit, the boy vomited everywhere, <laughs> and, uh, which was proof to me that the prayer worked. And uh, he wasn't a bad boy, just a nervous boy, and, uh, but uh, he just kind of looked at me, and I, I knew what the look meant, and I just went, and I gathered towels and cleaned it up. Right? I cleaned it up because that's just, just what you do. Right? That's, that's just what you do. In the moment that anybody uh, who is an ordained priest thinks that they're ever beyond that or that they're, they're above that, well, let me tell you, their ministry sunk. Right? Their ministry is initially sunk because uh, that's actually our calling on our lives as Christians. Uh, but especially for those of us who have taken ordination vows, uh, our first ordination was to that of the diaconate. And yet, these deacons... They weren't just serving. They weren't just doing the administrative task, but they, had an, they were doing other things. We know, and we'll find out, uh, Stephen uh, was preaching and had a healing ministry. Uh, Philip was uh, a remarkable evangelist, and these poor other guys, we don't know anything about them. So, um, uh, so they, they didn't, they were, uh, they were, and Philip baptized. So uh, that's why today we have deacons that they, we have deacons that, that serve, they also preach, and they also have the ability uh, to baptize. And then we have the apostles, whose primary function uh, is, is to preach. Well, I want to talk about 
the call of, of God on our lives right now? Because I think that's a bigger question that all of us have. What does God want to do with my life? Um, I preached at the Diocesan Acolyte Festival a couple months ago. And from the pulpit, I said, you know, it, the Acolyte ministry is, is a pretty ripe field for calling people to the priesthood because, I mean, other than padding a college resume, I mean, why in the world would a kid want to do that unless they really like church? Right? I mean, and the ones that are into it, that's great. And they're the ones that, uh, not that one, uh, but uh, they're the ones who are going to, uh, who, who uh, may, in fact, God may be calling them to the priesthood. Uh, but God has a, I preached at the Diocesan Acolyte Festival, and I said, maybe God is calling you to the priesthood. And this guy came up to me who's, who's ordained and been in the diocese for 40 years, and he said, that's the first time I've ever heard a priest ask for, a, for people to respond to a call to ordination. I thought, that's crazy. That's crazy. Now, I understand because when Lauren told her parents, I'm marrying a preacher, like, they thought that like, we were going to be in poverty and live in their basement and make her living off of hams and jellies. Like, and that's what they thought. And right, we don't get in this job to get rich, that's for sure. But uh, is that us? All right, then, then just ignore it. Just ignore it. <laughs> and so, uh, and I've run into a lot of guys who later on in life will say things like, you know, at one point in time I felt called to the ministry, but it's just too late. It's just too late. Let me tell you, it's never too late. It's never too late. Uh, if it is, I'll let you know, but it may be too late. David Tanner, it's too late. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> It's never, it's never, it's never, ever too late. But beyond that, I don't want people to start to think that there's this dichotomy between those who are called to ordination and those who are not. Because in the church, still prevailing to this day, there's this idea that super Christians, people who really like to read their Bible, those are the people that get ordained. And that's not true. Oz Guinness, maybe some of y'all have read his books. Uh, I think he's been here at the Advent before. Uh, he was a super Christian. He was leading a Christian ministry, and, uh, and every, he was on the road to ordination, and he was fueling up his car. He's English. He was in England and fueling up his car. And uh, while he was fueling up his car, he felt God spoke very clearly to him, saying, don't, don't get ordained. Don't get ordained, because you can do what you're doing right now you don't need ordination to do that. And so don't buy into this thing of like, I'm not a real minister unless I'm actually uh, ordained. And I mean, this thing, like, I'm, I'm, it's actually, you can rent this out for traffic court. You just give me a call and, um, and for $5, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, uh, but, but you can give it a shot. Um, but in fact, and, and many more effective ways uh, God can use you in the place uh, you're in, and God's calling on your life, uh, whether it's to be an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, uh, even a stay-at-home mom, uh, is just as powerful and is just as necessary as what anybody who's an ordained priest or deacon or bishop does. Now, I mean, I, I was talking to a guy once who's the retired lieutenant governor of South Carolina and is just a wonderful, wonderful man, and, and he kept saying in our conversation, now, I, what you do is much more important than what I do. And I just thought, really? It's, he just couldn't get it in his head that, that God's call in his life to be an elected office and that God was going to use him there was just as important uh, as what I was doing. And the, the, the Bible is full 
of those examples, of those uh, whom God uses that are not in an ordained or even a prophetic capacity uh, to further his kingdom and to spread the gospel. And in a lot of ways, you are more effective than me. Right? I walk into a cocktail party looking like this, right? The needle goes off the record. <laughs> unless, unless it's Episcopalians. And they're like, what do you want to drink? Um, uh, uh, but... Right? I get mixed reactions you know, uh, when I wear my... Uh, I'll tell you where this does work. Air travel. Air travel. Because they will bump you up and they will usher you through. And it helps. Like, I sometimes will wear a hat because it makes me look a little sick. And so with the collar and that, and I just kind of um, get through the line. And, um, but uh, when you're in public wearing the collar, uh, it's either... Like, I'm going to cross the street the, the other way. I'm a black cat. Or uh, it's people running up to me. But that's more, more, this is actually, this is a funny statistic. Uh, people will come up to me and they say, oh, Father, uh, where do you, uh, is everything okay? I'll ask them, is everything okay? And they're like, not really. And then they'll ask, well, where, where is your church? And I'll say, well, I'm at the Advent. And they're like, is that Roman Catholic? And I'll say, no, ma'am. And they'll say, Never mind. And then they'll go wandering up. I'm like, so um, I don't actually get that many people running up to me. Uh, what I do have, and I, I would love to know if anybody else is like this. I'm not wearing my collar, but maybe it's just the way where I, I, I am constantly being bombarded in retail stores where I'll be standing someplace and someone will come up to me and say, do you know if this is for sale? Or, 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 or can you tell me where this department is? I mean, it happens all the time. And so I guess I'm approachable. Uh, and maybe I miss my calling in life. Maybe I should be in retail. But, uh, but you actually have more access uh, than I do. Right? Uh, it, it is very funny when you are at a cocktail party and, and I'm not wearing this and then the person I'm speaking to uh, you know, they find out what I do, and all of a sudden the conversation goes real religious real fast. Right? <laughs> Which, after about four drinks, is really funny. Um, <laughs> and, um, and we see that in the Bible, too. And Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in Samaria, and he says, go and get your husband. Well, I have no husband. Indeed, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with right now is, is not your husband. And she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> and our, you know, our fathers worship here, but you say Jerusalem is... The, like She immediately turns the conversation uh, to, to religion, but uh, there's a, a depth of honesty that you have in your relationships uh, that there's a barrier that exists in mine that's not in yours. So never, ever underestimate uh, the ability of God to use you uh, where you are. In fact, uh, I bet you if I went around this room and listened to all of your testimonies about how it was that you came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, the primary person that God used was probably not a preacher. Was probably not a preacher. Now, uh, before you say, then, then what good are you? Uh, um, I, do, I do appreciate, uh, there are times when we're called in, I, I've told you that there was a woman at Beaufort who was a really remarkable lady, and she called me up one day, and she said, uh, I need you to meet with my son. And I thought, oh gosh. And she said, he's shiftless, 
He's lazy. He has no direction in life. He just needs some get up and go, and he needs someone to kick him in the rear end, and he's just, he won't listen to me, so maybe he'll listen to you. And I said, well, maybe it's a good idea that, that he and I speak first. She goes, well, he's standing right here, and she handed the phone over. And, uh, and I mean, I could see in my mind's eye this guy who, it was like 35, and I said, um, and I, and I said look, buddy, I... I'm more than happy to buy you lunch. You need it. And, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but so uh, sometimes we are sort of the Coast Guard uh, that is called in, but even in those uh, moments, uh, it's not uh, necessarily effective because, uh, like the apostles, uh, it's really hard to have sustained, ongoing, intentional discipling relationships uh, when you're busy doing all the other stuff. And so really, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, the work of the clergy is to equip the saints for ministry. Right? That's, that's our job, is to help equip you uh, for ministry. And, and you uh, are ministers uh, yourselves, but you have a different function. But one of the functions that you have is it's your job to raise up and to discern who it is that's called to ordination. So there's a wonderful image of this at Christ Church Cathedral in Oxford that when you go in, you start looking for the pulpit, and it's really hard to find, mainly because it blends in with the wood and everything else. But if you're standing uh, and you look where it is at the Advent, you don't see it. Uh, it's actually in the middle of the congregation. Like where the pews are, it's in the middle of it. And what that imagery is trying to convey is the notion that the preacher comes up out of the midst of the congregation and preaches the word of God to them. Right? The old English word for preacher, and, and sometimes in the country they still use it, parson. Right? The parson, the person who represents the congregation who's the, the person of God uh, to that congregation. So they come up out of the midst. And here, it wasn't the apostles. Uh, this is, so the apostles didn't go out and say, okay, you, not you. you. They said, you pick them. And so they prayed about it, and God showed them who the seven would be in order to do that. And uh, it was the local church's job to raise up those individuals for those vocations. And so the congregation definitely has uh, a lion's share of who it is that ought to be uh, ordained uh, in the life of the church. And even to talk about it, I mean, no one really likes to, uh, you know, it, it is a little bit awkward going up to somebody and saying, hey, you should be, you should be a preacher, right? Um, I've told you, I was, I was young, uh, when I knew. And a lot of it, I kind of knew, but what it took was for somebody to say to me, this is what you're supposed to be. Uh, now, when that happened, I was 15 years old, uh, which pretty much torpedoed my dating career in high school and college. Um, so I lied and said I was pre-law. Um, and, um, and yet, uh, that's, that is the call uh, on our life. So, now the way we do it, we kind of still do it that way, and then we, but now we send them off to seminary for three years. And uh, one of uh, the funny things uh, about that is right now, most people who are enrolled in seminary will not go into pulpit ministry. Most seminarians right now are not going to come back to a place like the Advent. They're going to go into some sort of chaplaincy work, 
they're just doing it for educational uh, reasons. They're doing it uh, just because, well, just, just for their own edification, uh, they're doing it. Uh, so actually right now, those who go into parish ministry are in a minority. And uh, that creates a certain dynamic in a seminary, I think, uh, that really robs it of, uh, of what it, it should be uh, about. And so the emphasis in seminary right now, and this is a generalization, I don't think that this is true at some seminaries, but I think it's true on large for our Episcopal seminaries, is that they're not learning and they're not being helped to understand that their primary task is to be a preacher. In spite of the fact that it's held up in front of their face all the time. In fact, uh, for the longest time, Ministers just a hundred years ago would sign their name and after their name would put VDM. And that stood for uh, Verbi Domini Minister, a minister of the word. Everybody almost did that. Uh, And now uh, we don't. And when an Anglican minister is ordained, this is the first question they are asked. Are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures contain sufficiently all doctrine required of necessity for eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? And are you determined out of the said Scriptures to instruct the people committed to your charge and to teach nothing as required of necessity to eternal salvation, but that which you shall be persuaded may be concluded and proved by the Scriptures? And the candidate says, I am so persuaded and have so determined by God's grace. So their first promise in ordination is what? I believe the Bible's true, and I'm going to preach it. And when they are ordained, what's the very first... Who's been to an ordination in in the Episcopal Church? What's the very first thing that happens when they're ordained? They immediately stand up, and the bishop does what? They're handed a Bible. And the bishop says, Take thou authority to preach the word of God and to minister the holy sacraments in the congregation where thou shalt be lawfully appointed thereunto. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and this is not disparaging, but just it's a different kind of ministry, uh, the bishop says, as the bishop is handing a patent and a chalice to the newly ordained, says, Receive the power to offer sacrifice to God and to celebrate masses for the living and the dead, in the name of the Lord. It's a very different function. In fact, in the late 1800s, right after the Oxford movement, which was with the Anglo-Catholic movement, not sort of, it was, uh, the Anglo-Catholic movement to make our worship more Catholic and our theology more Catholic, and that came out of Oxford and made more of an impact in America, actually, than, than England, um, there was this big to-do over whether or not Anglican orders were valid in the, in the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church, right? And uh, up to now, it was sort of convoluted, but they wanted a definitive word because there were some Anglo-Catholic ministers that wanted to be seen by Rome as real priests. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's easier to ask for for forgiveness than it is permission. It should have been quiet because Rome came back and said what? Definitively, no. So a Roman Catholic uh, bishop would look at me, and there are some right now, if you're an Anglican minister and you go into the Roman Catholic Church, you have to be ordained, right? You have to be ordained again 
because the first ordination in their eyes is not valid. And one of the things that the document, you can go back and read it if you want, it's very exciting. Um, uh, one of the reasons why they say that, your, that ordination is not valid is because of its form. Now, what do they mean by that? Well, they go into detail and they're like, well, you ordain preachers, right? You hand them a Bible. Like our, our notion of the priesthood is sacerdotal. That is a sacrificing priesthood. Uh, and and the, the main emphasis in that function is to say mass. And so Roman Catholics today, the priest is still supposed to get up in the morning and they say mass and they, uh, they do it as often as they possibly can. And uh, where when we're ordained, uh, it's primarily uh, about preaching. But in that, why the bishop says, take this uh, with the authority to preach the word of God and to celebrate his holy sacraments, administer his holy sacraments, because the sacraments uh, are visible and tangible reminders of what the word of God says. Right? So the bread and the wine, uh, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee. And if you listen to the communion service, it's all about this is what Jesus did for you. Full stop. This is what Jesus has done for you. And the, the, the concept of baptism and that in it is this helpless child who comes to the font uh, of, of no uh, volition of their own, uh, but they're brought uh, normally unwillingly, and yet there is this beautiful image of, of being uh, baptized in the death of Christ. Right, and coming out the other side, a new being, the, uh, the water symbolizing the mystical washing away of sin in our own life. And so these were visual, our visual reminders to us of everything uh, that, that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And uh, it was very interesting when we had, um, now we have two broken arms. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the, the clergy in the Diocese of Alabama were asked, were asked, what, what's the one thing you could really use some help on? Like if we had a clergy day and we brought in an expert, what, what would you want it to be? And I was elated to find out it was preaching. That's a good sign in the Diocese of Alabama when that happens. And they brought in this guy from Candler at Emory University who was really good. Uh, and I, I thought Tom Long is his name. He's a Presbyterian guy, wonderful man. And he did a really wonderful job. Uh, but there was a pretty strong contingent, a significant minority, uh, that really uh, pushed back against him. And their, I mean, I'll just quote them, they said, preaching's just not that important uh, because... Uh, I do communion every Sunday. I don't really even need to preach. Now, one, I wanted to uh, bring up charges on, uh, of him of violation of the rubrics of the prayer book uh, because, you know, in morning prayer, you don't have to do a sermon, but you have to do a sermon in the Episcopal Church if you celebrate communion. You have to do one. And so uh, I want them all thrown in jail. Just kidding. Uh, but, uh, so that's the one thing. But uh, what does Paul tell us? Faith comes through hearing. Uh, Hugh Latimer echoed this when he said that if there is to be, uh, if, if we are to, to, to be saved, we must have preachers. Well, that doesn't mean uh, that, that we're uh, the reason why people are getting saved, but unless, here in Acts we see it, unless uh, there are preachers to declare the word of God and what has happened uh, in our lives because of what Jesus Christ has done, uh, how will we know? How will we know unless someone 
tells us. We're going to get to it, but Philip running up alongside the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading from the book of Isaiah, uh, the wonderful suffering servant passage. And uh, Philip jumps up there and he says, well, what are you reading? He says, I have no idea. How can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And Philip does just that. And then immediately they stop and like, let's get baptized. And then Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. And so... um, in our function uh, here as priest, it doesn't mean, uh, I think one of the things we do really well here at the Advent, surprisingly for a place its size, uh, is I think we do pastoral care really well. Um, we, we, we see people uh, often, uh, sometimes uh, I've heard too often, like I've already seen someone today, thank you, uh, no. Um, but uh, uh, but uh, we do that, and we still do that because, uh, one, um, that didn't mean that the apostles, and especially Jesus, that he didn't continue to invest in the lives of the disciples around him and to build relationships. One of the hard things about the Advent that I try really hard at, it, you know, when I hear a friend say something, if they go to a really, really, really big church, and they'll say something like, oh, so-and-so is my, my pastor. And, and they'll start talking about them like, oh, it sounds like you know a church that size, it's remarkable that you know that person so well. And they're like, oh, I don't. You know, I like exchange pleasantries with them, but I, I really don't know them. And, um, and, and that really uh, breaks my heart. Now, I don't think it's possible for me uh, to, to be um, uh, intimate friends with, with all of you uh, in this room, uh, unless you want to uh, buy me dinner. But, um, <laughs> but at the same time, um, there has to be some sort of personal connection. So at the very least... When the preacher is in the pulpit, uh, there's there's that connection. You know, like I, I feel like they're they're talking to me, and that they understand what what I'm dealing with. Which is why, if this ever happens in the Advent, if we decide to have you know um, an Advent camp, you know, all these places with different campuses, um, and what they do for the sermon is they just like pull down the screen and project the preacher up there, that will never, ever happen. Let me tell you why, because it, that's, it misses out totally on what the preaching moment is, is about. It's, it's a conversation. And if you, I, I, I wouldn't challenge you to do this because uh, I love you, uh, but <laughs> it's very funny uh, because normally whoever the preacher is Sunday morning, whoever's celebrating or leading the services is also the same person for the three morning services. And, and it's funny to get the take from the person leading the services because uh, I will preach the same sermon three different times, but it is three different sermons. Right? Why? I mean, 7.30, every once in a while, I'm like, just blink. Just tell me you're out there. And I just, like, just, you know, it's like, walk, you know, when you have a newborn baby and you, like, listen to hear if they're breathing uh, uh, in the crib. Um, you just watch, like, watching bellies and just making sure everybody's out there. Um, they're getting, a, I mean, it's funny, like, they'll do, like, a little bit of a chuckle. Uh, 11 o'clock will be a little bit more, and, like, I'll say something that's not funny at 9, and people will just die laughing. And it's a, so the 9 o'clock service, thankfully that's the one on the radio, is by far uh, the, um, uh, the, the because, because there is something going on, right? There, there is something going on between the preacher uh, and the congregation, which has to do with the spirit of, of God. And so... Um, my prayer is that, uh, one, uh, that you would know God's call in your life, whatever that is, whatever that is. And, uh, and it's the church's job to help you with that. Right? That's the church's job to help you with that, even if it is. I mean, I talked to a guy once who is an ordained minister, and he said, I just, I'm afraid to tell people I don't feel called to this office. I said, 
There's no shame in that, right? Everyone thinks there's a shame in being a former uh, minister uh, of the gospel. And I said, in fact, if you stay where you are, you're denying yourself a blessing and you're denying your people a blessing because you're in a spot you're not supposed to be and somebody else is. Right, so it's the church's job to help discern the call, whatever that might be, and to encourage people in whatever that call is. Even if somebody says, look, I want to be, um, be a carpenter. I, I want to be, uh, be an entrepreneur. Whatever it is, uh, it's the church's job to, to encourage that and to help discern that call. Wherever it is in life, if you are called to ordination, tell somebody. Right, there's a process of discernment. It's not like you say you're called to ordination and the next weekend we lay our hands on you. That's not how it works. Um, it's a long period, and the whole idea is that we will help you discern whether that is God's call on your life. And if the answer is no, that's not a rejection. It's just God wants you somewhere else. And trust me, um, sometimes it's better being someplace else. Uh, and then next, so if you say something to somebody. And then uh, my final is just a prayer for priests and deacons, uh, and especially bishops, uh, that they would understand uh, what their primary functions are, and they would live those out with boldness. We have no other confidence except uh, that which is behind us and that which is uh, upon us, and that is God's call on our life and his message. And um, uh, otherwise, again, uh, we're completely and totally sunk. And so, and lastly, I would just say thank you to Kathy Jacob, who's a deacon. She's sitting there in the back, uh, by far the most attractive deacon in the diocese, and um, best dressed, and, uh, and really, really, really wonderful. Um, if I had the time, I would go on to say how, how the diocese needs to figure out what deacons are for, and, uh, and to rightly order things. Um, but we'll talk about that, Kathy, uh, like we always do. So, um, any questions, comments, concerns? David Front. Tell us what happened uh, with the woman who put her shiftless son on the phone. <laughs> I did not have lunch with him. Uh, I, I never saw he um, he he moved out, um, so that that worked. Uh, but but sadly, I mean, this is a good illustration. Uh, then, then I would get phone calls from the mom saying, he never calls me. He never talks to me anymore. <laughs> Lauren? Um, and you may have gone over this when I was doing the thing, but what, um, as a congregation, like, how in the discernment of the priesthood would you say, you know, like, you see somebody and you say, oh, I'm really I wish that were the qualification. You know what, I'm saying? I mean, right. what is, I mean, I guess how what are we looking for? But I think that people who can, I think, again, it's not for super Christians, but it is for people who have a fire in the belly that want to preach the word of God. Like if someone comes to me and I ask them, and this happens kind of often, and they say, I feel called to ordination. Well, what are you excited about? Well, I'm really excited about getting people uh, to be involved in their communities. I'm like, you're not called to ordination. What, I mean, you can do that without being ordained. I mean, you can go out and be a community organizer. You don't have to be ordained. I mean, the tax deduction is nice, but, but that's not a reason to get ordained. So I think that it's, it is the church identifying people that might be called to ordination, 
but then it's up to the church at large in that process to begin to discern that. So those things will eventually come out. Like if they have, I mean, the struggles, the giftedness, things like that. Like God equips those who he calls. So you don't have to worry about that. And our seminary is preparing people more. You said most people aren't, who go to seminary are not going to become priests. So are they preparing them by their curriculum or people for the diaconate or lay ministry? Or do you think No. The Episcopal Church's seminaries do a very good job of preparing ministers for the Episcopal Church. And we don't need that. Uh, we need people who are ministers of the word for the church, capital C. Right, people who can go out and kind of land in any location. I mean, I think what I, when we were interviewing for the curate, the biggest thing, I just I was amazed by the lack. Uh, it wasn't even theological. You can throw theology out the window, but just the lack uh, of. Uh, I'm saying this. There was no. They weren't able to articulate what the gospel was and what it was. Their function was when all they have to do is open up the prayer book and it says preach and, and, and administer the sacraments. Or if they had said that, I would have said, okay, moving on. But they just, they couldn't, it's just a lot of gobbledygook. There's not a lot of confidence uh, in, in coming out of seminary right now. Now, I understand that because seminary is just hard. Like, it's just three years of getting beat down. And, I mean, I really bucked against it and got into a little bit of trouble. Um, I had to leave England. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but... Um, but in a lot of, I mean, just the, the concept of, uh, and I think that's the other thing, is that seminary, they try to basically break you down emotionally and reshape you. I mean, that's why the joke is there are actually three genders, masculine, feminine, and clergy. And um, rather than, like, the thing in seminary was, like, just be you. Just be you. That's who God has made you. Don't, don't try to, so like I would notice that the guys would try to get in touch with their feminine side and the girls would try to get in touch with their masculine side. It always went wrong. It always went wrong. And they just, they came across as neuter. They weren't human. They weren't, they weren't approachable. Warts and all. All right. Go in peace and love and serve the Lord.